Um, I began studying Leviticus chapter 24. That's where we'll be if you want to turn in your Bibles, Leviticus 24. And thinking about thinking about the things written here and looking at the whole chapter, my original intention was to do the whole chapter. It's not a long chapter really compared to some that we've done. I got through about verse 9 and had to stop. And it wasn't because of time. It was yesterday. And after the ninth verse, just I felt like the Lord was saying, stop here. So we'll, we're going to do nine verses and we'll come back to the rest of Leviticus 24 next week. Now here's the thing that's hard for me. This is the kind of teaching that typically, and, and I would have thought this way in the past, and it's probably a more typical pastor way of thinking, but this is the kind of teaching as you go through it, you think, okay, that's something everybody in the body needs to hear. This is a Sunday morning message right here, because the things contained here are not for the Wednesday night crowd. The Wednesday night group that tends to come tends to be a little more, you know, let me just pat you on the back, a little more interested in the deeper things in the Word. You want to study a little more. You want to dig a little deeper. You're out here in the freezing cold on a Wednesday night. You're here for a reason. It's not me. I know that. And so this is, it's the whole thing about preaching to the choir. Some of what we're going to look at in these nine verses is preaching to the choir. My assumption with many, if not all of you, well, my assumption with all of you is that the things we're going to talk about are things that are part of your spiritual life, things that you are engaged in, that you're already doing. And so even walking down here, Sean and I was walking down, I was thinking in my head, really, Lord? I mean, maybe we should just worship tonight, and I'll save this and do it Sunday morning. And even though we're in the middle of looking at the Feast of Israel on Sunday, we can bump that. Because there are some people that need to hear this. And God keeps telling me on this track that we're on in studying through the Bible that there's a right place and the right time and his timing is perfect and mine is often way off so we're going to go by God's timing and we're going to see what he has to say maybe there's just one person who really needs to hear this tonight maybe all of us do I know it was encouraging for me but let's, let's see what this has to tell us now as you all know Sunday mornings we're covering the Feast of Israel in Leviticus 23 we're going to sit there for two or three weeks we began last week be a couple or three weeks more in Leviticus 23 and we're going to keep on rolling on Wednesday nights here uh, until we're done with Leviticus there's only 27 chapters we will probably Lord willing will be done by Christmas with Leviticus actually I know the Lord's willing I'm not sure if if I'm capable of it but we're, we're going to try to be done by Christmas just going on but I want you to think about something here and I, and I mentioned this in the email it's interesting to me that you've got Leviticus 23 and then you have 24 and then you have 25 and the fascinating thing to me is that Leviticus 23 comes before Leviticus 24 and Leviticus 25 comes after Leviticus 24 and you're saying no duh what a brilliant pastor you are but here's the reason why I say this. Leviticus 23, from a literary perspective, I was raised an English teacher's son. Okay, so I learned a lot about literature. I read a lot growing up. And even on into college, if I didn't go into ministry, I might have gone in the direction of English literature because I love literature. This is not the way to end a book. Now, if I were writing 
the book of Leviticus. I would not write it this way. Leviticus 24, I would have put earlier somewhere else. Because you get to 23 and it's the Feast of Israel. And it's exciting. And it's, it's rejoicing. And it's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's all about, as we talk about Sunday, the commemoration of great things that God had done. And anticipation of the things that He would do. Both in the first and the second coming of Christ. So it's wonderful just to sit in chapter 23, read about these feasts, compare them to Jesus. Wow! It's just one of those great prophetic chapters. Leviticus 25 is similar. For in Leviticus 25 we discover what God calls the Jubilee. Every 50th year, all debt is canceled. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, there's there's a, a presidential platform to run on right there. We're canceling all debt. By the way, let me just mention this to you. I don't know if you if you knew this, but most Americans have about $40 total, $40 in savings and investments. The average American has $40 in savings and investments. So that's average. Now, if you don't have $40 in savings or investments, if you don't even have that much, or if you have a lot more, I mean, we're all in a different place there. But the good news is, the bad news is, I guess, that the average American has 40 bucks in savings and investments. The good news is that that's a whole lot more than the U.S. government has. <laughs> Not in a good place there. I think the debt canceling we need to begin with the government. However, Leviticus 25, about jubilee, release. We've got rejoicing in 23. We've got release in 25. And then we come to 24. And I just wouldn't have put it here. Because it's not about rejoicing and it's not about release. As a matter of fact, it's got some very heavy undertones. The first nine verses we're going to look at will discuss the perpetual work of the people, the ongoing work. Verses 10 through 16 deal or tells the story of a young man who curses the Lord and who then is brought in by the people of Israel until they could pray and find out what the Lord wanted them to do and he was then stoned to death. Then verses uh, 17 through 23 re-emphasize the law of reciprocation. That is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This chapter is just kind of uh, in the middle of woohoo and all right. And that's my definition for all this. Chapter 24 almost seems to poke holes in the sails of this ship that is ramping up here. We're coming to the end of Leviticus. It's like, man, we're going now. We're rolling. Feast of Israel. Jubilee. This is great. Let's roll right on out the door and on to the next book. Good job, Father. This is great. And then you hit 24. And it lands like a dull thud if you don't take time to read it carefully. But it does cause us to pause because in the middle of rejoicing and release, we find responsibility. Responsibility, which is not always the easiest thing for a Christian. Especially someone who loves to talk about grace, like myself. I could just sit in Ephesians chapter 2 my whole life and be happy as a clam. It's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no man can boast. Man, I could stay there all day long. Grace, 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 grace. But responsibility. Stuff that I have to do. Why is it here? Let me give you some context for this. Keep your finger there and flip over to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16. 
Deuteronomy 16 and verse 16. Much of Deuteronomy is repeating and going back over and, and relearning, helping the people to hear once again the things talked about in all the other books, in the first four books. And in verse 16 of chapter 16, the Lord says, Three times in a year, actually I believe this is Moses speaking, Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses. At number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, by the way, you may recall we talked about this Sunday. Feast of Unleavened Bread includes Passover and the Feast of First Fruits. They're all lumped together. So once a year, they have to come for Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, and First Fruits. Second time, it says you have to come back at the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. That would happen 50 weeks later. We'll talk about that this Sunday. And then, number three, at the Feast of Booths, or some translations will say Tabernacles. And they shall not appear, listen to this, they shall not appear before the Lord, watch this, empty-handed. You're to come three times a year, back to the place prescribed, which would be Jerusalem, once they're settled in the promised land. Three times a year, all the males must trek back, regardless of where you live in the land. God prescribes this. You have a responsibility, if you are an Israelite, to come back three times a year for these three feasts and when you come you do not come empty handed verse 17 every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you okay as God gives the only thing we truly can do to the Lord or for the Lord is respond to his giving He gives, I respond. It doesn't ever work the other way around. It's never me giving and God responding. It's He gives. Everything I do toward the Lord is in response. It's in thanksgiving. It's in appreciation. Response. But my response is expressed in my responsibility. Response is expressed in responsibility, in what I do, in how I respond to what the Lord has done. James puts it this way, he says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So here's the reality. You and I are saved by grace through faith. But if there are no works, there is no faith. Which means there is no grace. Huh? Are you saying that we're not really saved? No. We are saved by grace. Saved by grace. But the proof of my faith in God's grace, the fact that I actually trust the Lord, the fact that I believe, the proof of that, the proof in the pudding, if you will, is in what I do. It's in how I respond. It is in my responsibility and how I follow through with the Lord. So does that mean you just said you work your way to heaven? No. Because grace came first. And there is nothing I can do to earn that position in heaven. Not a single thing. However, the work I do in response to what God has done proves the faith that I have in what He's done. Does that make sense? My responsibility. Father, as we look at Leviticus 24, I pray that you would help us to consider these things, this responsibility. And especially, Father, what you have called us to what you desire for us to know and for us, Father, literally to do with our lives. Father, may we not be those who cheapen grace 
but respond to it with joy overflowing in every aspect of the way we live our lives. Holy Spirit, illuminate our eyes, our hearts to these things tonight and be our guide, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with all that in mind, verse 1, Leviticus 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Three times that word continually is used. You keep the light burning. Leave the light on for me, the Lord might even say. You keep it burning on the lampstand continually, Aaron. That's part of your job. Over and over and over. You don't let the lights go out. God is into light. Or perhaps we should say light is into God because God is light. The Bible tells us, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I'm reminded of this verse that, again, just has been sitting on my head for the last couple of weeks. Isaiah 9, 2. For people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Light is important to the Lord. Darkness has no place where the Lord is. Psalm 119.105 tells us, Your word, your word, Father, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. By the way, aren't you glad that we have this lamp? I mean, aren't you glad that we've got the word to live? I don't know how I would get by day to day. I don't know how I would survive or live in the world without the pure light of God's word to show me the way. We know this about the world. John 1.5 The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Without the Word there is not comprehension. Without the Spirit there is not even comprehension of the Word. Just darkness. And we live in a very dark world. Seeing a, saw a little thing on the news the other day. I believe it was Augusta, Georgia. Some of you may have seen this. Augusta, Georgia, for the holiday season, stores are going all out to attract customers, to really, you know, catch their eye. And is it snowing in Georgia or is that somewhere else right now? I think it's Augusta, Georgia. I don't know, does that sound right? No? Sunny and clear and good there? Well, it may not be Augusta, Georgia. So scratch that. Somewhere on the East Coast where there's a lot of snow right now, just put it there. I, I tell you, I'm just, this is not even in my notes. I'm just thinking about this. There was, talking about a dark world, you know, all the, the vendors are out there trying to get people to come into their shops in this small town with all these shops and everything. And this one woman who owned a lingerie shop had a terrific idea to have live models in her windows to attract customers. Guys, don't worry, it's far, far away from here. Women, don't worry, because your husbands can't get there. But we live in a dark world. We live in a dark world. I remember years and years ago when I was a kid. Well, I don't even know if I can talk about this. (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, there was a certain article of feminine clothing. But a certain, and what was her name? Jane... uh, 
Yep, that was it. My wife can say it. Do you remember that commercial? Jane Russell and the Cross Your Heart Bra. There you go. I said it. And I remember as a kid watching this commercial and it was shocking. You know why? She wore a bright red sweater, covered everything, but the bra was on top of the sweater. And that commercial was offensive. Lingerie models in the windows of shops. Amazing. We live in a dark world. Boy, I really went on a tangent there, but bring it back. The light still shines, game. And here's the deal. Though the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it, the light still wants to be comprehended. God wants to be understood. God wants us to know Him. To draw near to Him, which is why He sent Jesus. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Because God wants to be known. He wants to be understood. He wants to be explained. He wants to be clear to us. There's a guarantee for you, a biblical guarantee. God wants you to know Him. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He is opening up all possible opportunity for you to know Him. Are you looking? Are you looking for the light? Well, all that said, it's no surprise that God would ordain a lamp to burn perpetually in His presence in the tabernacle. The lamp needed constant tending, and it was to burn ongoing in the responsibility of the priest. Responsibility of the priest. But gang, the light in the tabernacle did not just depend on the priest to remain burning. It depended on the people. It depended on the people. Look again at verse 2. Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil. It was the responsibility of the people to get the oil to the priests, to bring the oil to the priests, and then Aaron and his sons would keep those lamps lit, would keep the fires going. Three and a half weeks from now, in fact on the same day this year as Christmas Day, is Hanukkah, also called the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Lights, where the Jews will celebrate that time. Back in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, about 150 or so years before Christ, when Antiochus Epiphanes, that evil Roman emperor, stormed into Jerusalem, took over the temple, desecrated the temple, messed up things royally, and a group of guys called the Maccabees, the Maccabees, which means the hammer, They began to fight from the hills and from the caves and from secret places, striking at night, striking in small number. And they ended up overthrowing Antiochus Epiphanes and Rome and driving them out. Some of you know this story. And they went into the temple and they cleansed it all out and they consecrated it and they got it all ready and they relit the lamps. That would be the the lamp in the, the golden lampstand in the holy place. They should have waited. Because in the moment they relit the lamp, they realized they had no oil to continue the burning of the lamp. It would take at least eight days to consecrate, to bring the oil that was needed, the clear oil, the pure oil. It would take eight days to process it and get it ready, and there was not enough oil in the lamps to last for eight days. But the people prayed, and miraculously, the light continued to burn for eight days. And so the Jews celebrate, even to this day, the festival of lights. Hanukkah is kind of lost, just like Christmas, in the commercialism of everything. It's kind of the Jews and the Jewish kids get to get presents too, you know, so they use Hanukkah. 
Because it really wasn't fair when all the Christian kids were getting gifts and the Jewish kids were getting, you know, like a dreidel. So, Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights, the priest gang did their work, but the people had to bring the oil. It was the responsibility of the people. The responsibility. What is your responsibility? As members of the body of Christ, the vast majority of us in this room are not pastors. <laughs> I am. So I guess that would be the vast majority. Everybody but one. I'm the only full-time pastor in here. What is your responsibility? If we're going to draw kind of a parallel, and don't draw it too far because it could get messy, but a parallel between Aaron, the priest, and the Levites, and maybe pastors, and then the people of Israel looking like similar to the rest of the church, although we're all the priesthood of believers. If we draw that parallel, what do you bring? What is your responsibility to bring to this body or to whatever church you fellowship in? What is your responsibility? The children of Israel had to bring oil for the lamps, to keep the lamps burning, to keep them lit. More than a century ago, um, Spurgeon, one of the great pastors, one of the great preachers of the previous century, actually the previous, previous century, he he and his people built what was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Have you heard of that, the Metropolitan Tabernacle? It was a church building, basically, that seated 5,000 people, which over a century ago was unbelievable, absolutely astounding. We have big churches in our country today, but back then it was unbelievable, unheard of. In fact, that Metropolitan Tabernacle that seated 5,000 was filled several times through a Sunday. All the people coming, you would think to hear Spurgeon preach. And yet, Spurgeon saw Spurgeon saw something very different. He believed that the reason for his impact in his church was his congregation. He believed thoroughly that the reason why people wanted to hear the preaching had nothing to do with him. It had to do with the people in the fellowship, the people who worshipped there. The illumination, he believed, was his congregation. He credited not his preaching, not his teaching, but the people who brought the oil. Who brought the oil. What is oil? I've asked this over and over. Let's just make sure we all know what is oil a picture of in the Bible. The Holy Spirit. Interesting. The people bring the oil. The people bring the oil. That might seem a bit upside down. You you might say, if oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit, how do the people bring the oil? I thought the Holy Spirit came to us. I'll answer that in a second. But there was an afternoon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a Sunday afternoon, where a group of people were visiting the tabernacle and wandering around looking at and just amazed by it. And they saw a man in his overalls pushing a broom. They came up to him and they, they asked, hey, can you show us, what, what is it that heats this massive building? You must have like a heating plant of some kind. And he said, oh yeah, we do. I, I can take you right down to it. And he took them down hallways and downstairs and down into what seemed like a basement room. But when he opened the door and they went inside, there were 150 men on their knees and on their faces praying before the Lord. And he said, this is the heating plant for this church. Later that evening, the same group came in to worship and to listen to the great Spurgeon preach. And as they sat down to hear from him, the man who was in the overalls that afternoon got up now dressed ready to preach. It was Spurgeon. The heating plant 
for this church, he would say, is these men on their knees. These people on their faces. It's prayer. How do we bring the Holy Spirit? How do we, how do the people bring the oil? How do we invite and draw the Holy Spirit to this place? The answer is through prayer. It is in our prayer. Gang, if the teaching here is anointed, it's because of the prayer of the saints. Not because of the ability of the pastor. If the worship is intimate, it's because the oil has been prepared. If lives are changed, if people grow in the Lord, it's because the Spirit is responding to the intercession of the saints. And this is important for us to hear. We're going to be talking a lot about this. Considering it. Praying about prayer. Because we're still not in the place that I would like us to be, that I believe the Lord wants us to be when it comes to prayer as a body of believers. We're not there yet. Intercession. E.M. Bounds once said the following. He said, The Holy Spirit does not flow through machinery or methods, but through men of prayer. If you desire, you long for this place to be full of the Holy Spirit, it's only going to come when we're willing to pray. Now, I don't mean thank you for this food. Now, I don't mean a quick prayer here or there or before a meeting or after a Bible study. I mean real prayer and gain. I believe it's the greatest single responsibility you have in Christ Jesus. Prayer. I think it's the most important thing that we can do. And, and I want to tell you, by the way, as I teach this, that I fall woefully short of what I'm telling you you need to do. This is for us. That we learn what it really means to be a people of prayer because prayer brings the oil of anointing. Prayer invites the Holy Spirit to come. Now you might say, wait a minute, I think the most important thing for a believer to do is love. Isn't it love? Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God and the second is like it, love your neighbor. So it's love, right? Gang, listen to me, it's prayer. Because it is only through prayer that the Holy Spirit comes and it's only through the coming of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can love. We don't know love outside of the Holy Spirit. Not the love of God. Not the kind of love that we are commanded to, that we are drawn to. You look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one on the list? It's love. Love. But it comes through the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And if we want the Spirit to come, we have got to be people of prayer. And many of you know this. Prayer is not the easy out. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's the hardest thing a Christian can do. It is harder than the work. It is harder than the programs and the methods and the strategies. It's harder than the building. It's harder than the hands-on stuff that we can so easily do. Man, I can pick up my guitar anytime and play a worship song. That's easy. Studying the Bible, which I love to do, that's easy. A prayer. Prayer is hard. And you see it even here in this picture given to us of bringing the clear oil. The sons of Israel were supposed to bring clear oil from what? Beaten olives for the light. Beaten olives. There was an easier way to extract olive oil than this way prescribed by the Lord. There's a process by which you can heat it up and in so doing you can make olive oil a whole lot easier than beating the olive oil and straining out the impurities. But God said, no, I want the best olive oil 
And the best olive oil always came through beating the olives first and then straining out the impurities. It was harder work. Hey, listen, great things can be done in the church by turning up the heat. By people just getting passionate. Woo, we're going to go. We're going to do this. Let's have another retreat. And we come out of those retreat situations. We're ready to rock for the Lord. It's great. But it doesn't last, does it? However, the harder way, the more difficult way, the challenging way, is the way of prayer, the way of intercession. James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. By the way, when it says it did not rain on the earth, I believe that was on the earth. Not just in the region. Elijah said, God, would you hold the rain? This man of prayer did. And for three and a half years, the entire earth went dry. And you might say, well, I can't pray like Elijah. I'm nothing like Elijah. Well, James would differ. He would say, no, Elijah was a man just like us. Just like you. His nature was just like ours. Verse 18 of James chapter 5, he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. If we want to see fruit, it will only come through prayer. It will only come by being a praying church. And I'll put it to you this way. Anything good that we have seen happen at the bridge so far, I would credit to those who have been in prayer. Sunday mornings are really cool at the bridge. You know what? There's a group of people who pray every Sunday morning. And sometimes it's three or four standing outside freezing to death praying. And sometimes it's six or seven. But every Sunday morning, and if you want to be a part of that praying, what is it, 9.30? Be here at 9.30. Show up, pray. What are they doing praying out there? Just, just because they have extra time before service starts? No, praying for the service. For the souls that will walk in that door that need to hear. For the teaching. And there are plenty of times, gang, when I know absolutely that I've been prayed for that morning because I don't have it in me. In fact, it's interesting, those are usually the best times. When I'm just not there. But God does His work. Prayer. Gang, the prayerful approach is the most pure approach. It's the fellowship gang that, that, that learns to beat back the flesh and strain out the impurities. It's much, much harder than the easy human route because it results 100% to the pure glory of the Lord and not the glory of the flesh. We want to be a fellowship that can say to people, hey, hey, the reason why that barn is full is because we pray. The reason why lives are being changed is because people are praying. The reason why anybody even wants to be a part of this thing is because of the prayer. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. I don't think he could have said it any clearer. Pray at all times in the Spirit, the oil. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You know, if we really sat down and started to go through the list of all the saints, we couldn't get through everybody just here tonight in a week. Just praying for each person here. We're going to make a list, take the list home, and between now and next Wednesday, pray for everybody on the list. And I put it to you, you barely have enough time to get it all done. And yet Paul says with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, which means everybody who believes in Jesus throughout the world. 
That's a lot of praying. Paul says pray constantly. Don't stop. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul knows something. He's telling Timothy, you've got two options with men. They're either going to be in wrath or dissension, or they're going to be praying. I want them praying. That's the option. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Bring the oil. That is the number one thing you can do as a member of the body of Christ. Again, wherever you fellowship, whatever your church may be, the most important thing you can do is pray and bring the oil. Remembering that it's our response to grace. It's, not, it's our responsibility because of what God has already done. And it's also trusting that Jesus will build His church, not me. Not you. Now, Deuteronomy 16 explained that the Israelites were not to come to the Lord empty-handed. They were to bring the beaten olive oil, but they also were to bring something else. Look at verse 5. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. That would be the table of showbread, which we studied back in the book of Exodus. Verse 7, you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial uh, memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Verse 8, every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion Forever. His portion forever. It shall be for Aaron and his sons. That's interesting to me. This perpetual offering was given, gang, as some of the other offerings were as well, that the ministry might continue. What's interesting to note is that much of what the people of Israel brought, quote unquote, to the Lord, was for the Levites' consumption. For the Levites to eat the bread. Some of the meat of the offerings would go to the Levites to provide for their families, for them to eat, to provide for them so that they didn't have to be out farming and tending sheep and doing other things, but so that they could tend to the temple and the needs of the people, which was forgiveness of sin, sacrifices for sin, taking care of the guilt offerings, the trespass offerings, the burnt offerings, all of that. A few weeks back, we talked about the responsibility of every believer bringing the bread. He said, bring the bread, bring the bread, bring the bread. It speaks, gang, of provision. Bread speaks of provision. You bring the provision. We compared the word bread, which is lachem, L-E-C-H-E-M, lachem. We compared that to Jesus, the bread of heaven. Interesting, I've mentioned this before. Born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. As the word became flesh, so we are to bring the word to a hungry and starving people. The word, the bread, bringing the bread. But this bread, and the example we see here in Leviticus 24, is not what the Lord brings to man. It's what man brings to the Lord. And you follow me on that. This bread that is talked about here is what the Israelites were to bring to the Lord. So a few weeks ago we made the the illusion between bread and the bread being the word. And we need to be those who bring the word into this world, right? That's not the bread we're talking about bringing tonight. We're talking about the bread of provision. And that if we are a royal priesthood and are going to be similar to the Israelite priests, to the people, we're to bring provision. Bring provision. 
Think this through with me for a moment. Israel was to bring the best of the oil. Israel was to bring the bread for the table of showbread. Israel was to bring the choicest of its flocks, the firstborn among its sheep and rams and bulls and goats. They were to bring and to provide, to provide, to provide. We studied the making of the tabernacle. Where did everything come from to build the tabernacle? The people. The people had to bring and give. And it was by the provision of the people as God had blessed them that the ministry was able to take place. That's how it functions in a church. Now this is the part where we preach to the choir. Israel's response to God's relief, their response to rejoicing in all of the things that God had done, was in their giving, literally their tithing. For if you were an Israelite, this was not an option. This was a command of the Lord that you bring the first 10%. You bring it to the Lord. You give it to the Lord. 10%, by the way, not of net income, but gross. And some of you might say, well, 10% of my income would be gross. That's too much. (laughs) And the Lord would say, Israelites, if you have a larger field, the extra 10% is mine. If you grow in your flocks and herds, 10% of that growth is mine. The first 10% tithing. Now this is why, again, as a pastor you think, well, tithing, tithing messages are for Sunday morning, right? Get more people to give. Get them to dig deep in the pocketbooks and and pour out a little more cash because the church needs it. Well, first of all, how do I say this? I don't want to say the church doesn't need it, but the church doesn't need it. God provides for the bridge the way he wants to provide. And so whatever people give, that's what God's taking care of it. So that's not where I'm going with this. But the bottom line, gang, is that if you want to respond to the grace of God, I'm just going to say this flat out. I believe the best way you can do it when it comes to your giving is to start by tithing. To begin there. To start with 10%. And if you want to give more, hallelujah. And it's not, again, for the box in the back. It's for the heart that is in your chest. It's for your soul before the Father. Do you really want to develop trust in the Lord over your life? The way to do it, I'm telling you, is bringing the oil and it's bringing the bread. If you want to develop trust, you begin by praying. And you continue by tithing. Well, Rick, now you're sounding legalistic. Besides, I've only heard about that in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament uh, burden, not a New Testament requirement. Really. Interesting. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, to the scribes and the Pharisees, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and forgiveness. And we go, yeah, give it to them, Jesus. Forget about the tithing part. They need to have mercy and compassion and justice and forgiveness. These are the things. And boy, I have those things. I am a compassionate person. And not me. I'm not really actually all that compassionate. My wife is. But you might say, I'm a merciful person. I'm faithful. And that's my tithe to the Lord. I tithe with my time. And Jesus would say, these are things you should have done without neglecting the other. In other words, Pharisees, scribes, you're tithing. You're doing all that. And you should be. (laughs) You should be doing that. God is pleased with that. This is in the New Testament. God is pleased with your tithing. But in addition to that, 
you should be also meeting out justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he says, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And I fear, gang, that what our capitalistic Christianity has done is we flipped over to the other side of the pendulum. The scribes and Pharisees had no problem giving their tithe. They just had a problem with compassion and mercy. Christianity today is the flip-flop. We are actually a pretty, we're pretty compassionate people. We are. No, we're not perfect, but I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit's involvement in the church has created great mercy, great acts of justice, incredible compassion over the last 2,000 years, and you can mark it. Everything from, from schools and libraries and hospitals, these were born of Christian mercy, compassion, justice, and a desire to serve in this world. But when it comes to our money, well, that's a totally different thing for the church of today. When you realize the average giving of people is astoundingly low. And I'm not talking about the Bridge Christian Fellowship because honestly I have no idea what our percentages are. You want to know what percentages are? Ask Jeff. He, he, but he doesn't even know what people give individually. We know on a week-to-week basis the big picture, the big number, and it's pretty astounding to me in a good way. I'm amazed at how generous this church is. But if you look at and the way people give based on surveys done throughout the land in churches, it's astounding how poor it is, how minimal it is. Remember, gang, lest we begin to think about this legalistically, my responsibility to the Lord is my response to His grace. I want to show you two more verses and we'll stop tonight, but Malachi chapter 3, to flip over there. Oh no. Malachi chapter 3. We've been there before. That tithe verse. To prefer Malachi, the Italian prophet. Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book of the Old Testament. You may be familiar with this passage, and yet the part you're familiar with is not the part I want you to focus on. We're going to begin reading in about uh, let's begin reading in verse six. Malachi chapter three, verse six. I the Lord do not change. That's an important thing to recognize right off the bat. I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, it is purely by the grace of God that Jacob continued to even exist at this point. And I would add it's by the grace of God that we exist, that we live. It's by God's grace that we are sitting here tonight. Verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will the man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Then he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now here's what I want you to focus on. So that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The giving, the tithing that comes into the church. 
that giving gang is so that there may be food in God's house. Oh, what does that mean? That we can have more potlucks? No. It's so that we can do more. Right now, as we study tonight, Brian and Ruth Young are in Asia trying desperately to bring the gospel to people who are desperately lost. Phil Jones is in Costa Rica trying to do the same thing there. And it's not enough. It's not nearly enough. But if we brought... Can you even imagine if a church full of people, if every person in that church actually did this, how much there would be, how much food there would be for the ministry of the Lord to take place. How much impact could be done. He goes on, he says, and this is great, if you do this, I will open the windows of heaven, pour out for you a blessing till it overflows, verse 11, then I will rebuke the devourer for you. Some of you know what I mean by, or what the Bible means by devourer. The, the bills that come out of the blue, you weren't expecting that. Oh no, how are we going to pay for this? Oh, that's I think that's what he's talking about. I'm going to cut off the devourer. I'm going to protect you. You trust me in this way and all the bills that you're afraid you can't pay, I'm going to make sure that there's a way that they're paid. I will cut off the devourer from you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. You get a picture of Jesus on the mountainside feeding 5,000 people with 12 loaves. A few loaves. Was it 12? No, there were 12 baskets full left. A few loaves and some fish. And he fed 5,000. Because God just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies as we give in faith. As we trust him in faith. One other thing, verse 12 says, All the nations, the word there is goy, or goyim, which is Gentiles, unbelieving Gentiles, all of the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. In other words... God says, if you will trust me in this way, with this responsibility, I'll open the storehouses. I will flood you with blessing. I promise. And he says, test me. You don't believe me? Give it a shot. See what happens. Let me prove it to you. I'll open the storehouses. He says, I will protect you against the devourer and I will be praised among the nations. Wait a minute. He said, said they would be blessed. Yeah. The more blessed... A fellowship is, a people are, the more people who are unbelieving take notice of that. What is going on there? When people walk by the outside of the Metropolitan Tabernacle as it was being built, how many were saying, how is this possible? An auditorium for 5,000, it's just a church. How are they doing this? How? And the church was blessed, but gang, the Lord was praised because of what was going on. You bring the bread. You bring the bread. By the way, and I, I'm just going to say this, it's interesting to me that the argument against tithing is never brought by someone who's tithing or who is bringing in more than a tithe. It's never brought by someone who says, you know, I really would like to give more. The argument against tithing is always from the position of someone who would rather give less or who is not giving at all. It's always an argument against giving as opposed to in giving more. Last, last uh, passage, Haggai. Book of Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
Book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1, is page 955 in my Bible. <laughs> Haggai, another great name, by the way, if you're, you know, young and thinking about having children, that's a great name. You can also pronounce it Haggai, which would be great. It's a great name if you're really angry with a child. Haggai! <laughs> Verse 1, chapter 1, In the second year of Darius the king, or Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, <laughs> great names, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, now there's a name if you're angry with a kid, sorry, the high priest saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. For the Lord, word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much. But harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Can I just see how many people feel like you got a purse with holes? I do. I'm going to put both hands up. I'm holding my... But a purse with holes? Everything that God gives, it just... Oh boy, I, just I need more than... It's not enough. It's just not enough. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. I don't want to consider my ways, Lord. I just need a bigger paycheck. Wait a minute. You hearing this, Tom? Go up to the mountains. But it's not because of Tom. But never mind. That's a personal thing. It, go up to the mountains, he says. Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it. And be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little When you bring it home, I blow it away. (laughs) See, that phrase actually originated in Scripture. Being blown away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Because of who? Because you're being stingy, God? No, because of you. Because of you. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. What is God saying? At this point in Israel's history, it was a sad state of affairs. The people took everything they had and they were putting it into their homes, into their stuff, into their needs. It was capitalistic Judaism while the temple lay in ruins. The temple game. The temple. The temple is the place the Holy Spirit resides. It is the body of Christ. And lest the temple lay in ruins because we're too busy taking care of our homes, God would say, I believe to us tonight, bring the bread. Pray. Bring the oil. The beaten olives. Bring that pure oil, which is the Holy Spirit. Do it by praying. You be a people of prayer. And if you want to see ministry happen, if you want to be blown away by the work of the Lord, then you bring the bread. You bring the provision. And trust me. 
So we rejoice in the Lord like in chapter 23 and we, we we're released by the Lord like in chapter 25 but in chapter 24 we've got to pause and consider our responsibility, our responsiveness to the Lord. Bringing oil and bread, prayer and provision.